Welcome to the podcast from Argus, a leading provider of energy and commodity price benchmarks. We track and discuss the prices that create our world. And this is one of a six-part series about the prices affected by the changing U.S. crude oil infrastructure. I'm Gus Vasquez, and I'm the editor of the America's Crude Report. And I'm Alex Endres, crude reporter for the Americas. I cover U.S. crude market news for Argus, and as a price reporter, I assess U.S. pipeline prices with a focus on the Louisiana Gulf Coast, Cushing, and U.S.-delivered Canadian heavy sour markets. So today we're going to be talking about the changing role of LLS as a secondary benchmark at the U.S. Gulf Coast. This is important because we've gone from a world in which the U.S. was heavily dependent in imported crude to a world in which there's a huge amount of domestic production and the U.S. is actually an exporter of crude now. So when markets change, Argus also needs to change. And we're going to discuss that a little bit. Right. And so 10 years ago, Louisiana actually served as the primary import market for foreign crude and for the delivery of offshore production. Uh, and, and in Louisiana and St. James, crude was blended for U.S. refinery intake. One of the grades, uh, as Gus was talking about, LLS or Light Louisiana Sweet, uh, became very prolific during this time. It was blended uh, from imported and offshore crude at St. James and delivered there um, via the Capline pipeline to the mid-continent. So uh, cap line, 1.2 million barrel a day uh, pipeline, so major artery of, of crude. And just to, to show you that really light sweet crude was coming from, from the coast to, to Patoka and from there to the other uh, mid-continent markets. So we didn't have the domestic uh, production that we have now. We're really dependent on that imported crude, that blend of LLS. So to understand the LLS story and how secondary benchmark became really prominent, we have to step back a little bit to a time when there was a large increase in Canadian production, huge volumes of Canadian crude start coming down to Cushing, which is where West Texas Intermediate WTI, which is the main benchmark in the U.S., is priced. So as you get this crude coming in, the problem at the time was there wasn't enough infrastructure to get the crude out fast enough. So you start to get this build of supply, and as the supply increases, the price starts to drop. Yeah, and it was down to as much as a 25 to 30 discount, right, Cushing to uh, Ice Brent. Right. Ice Brent, of course, being the global benchmark that is used for waterborne market. So when you got to that point, secondary benchmarks really come into their own because what they did was instead of falling in line with WTI, they actually went the other way. So LLS starts to increase its premium to WTI, essentially staying in line with Brent. It was 30 to $35 premium, right? Is that, is that right? Right, which basically meant that it kept its relationship to Brent fairly steady at that point. And so this immediately shows the participants in the market that secondary benchmarking is really important. And, you know, not only do we see LLS um, pricing uh, along with the uh, ice Brent marker, um, but we also see the LLS trade volumes uh, rise to a benchmark status or what we would consider benchmark status. So 300,000 barrels a day uh, by 2014 um, and and opens up the possibility to benchmark against uh, other similar grades. Right. So, for example, a producer of Eagle Ford in South Texas is now looking to LLS to determine the value of his barrel because he knows LLS is reflecting an international market. Uh, if you look at an Eagle Ford, it's light, sweet, crude at the Texas coast. So it's really more similar to LLS, another light, sweet grade at the coast uh, versus, you know, Cushing, which is affected by uh, bottlenecked. Um, it's, it's really pressured by uh, those, those uh, volumes that are just kind of sitting there without anywhere to go. 
And then you've got the hedging part of the equation as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. So companies are actually able to hedge um, not only their basis price risk, uh, as in WETI at Cushing, but also uh, any part of their the differential risk of so whatever um, crude that they're they're supplying that may actually be more similar to the coastal marker versus the uh, inland Cushing marker. So when we talk about this basis price risk, we're talking WTI at Cushing. Now we know that since since the disconnect, since the inversion, WTI has now recovered because more infrastructure was essentially built to take crude out of Cushing. And so now that that story kind of has settled down. But at the same time, there's this parallel story going on in West Texas because you've got the Permian producing increasing amounts of crude. Now, as more crude comes online, it starts to travel to new places. The main place, instead of Cushing, becomes Houston. So now you've got WTI production from West Texas moving into Houston. This creates immediately a spot market that's pretty active. And by February of 2015, Argus launches its WTI Houston assessment. Yeah, and just later that year, actually, the U.S. crude export ban was lifted, and that had been in place since 1977. So that adds a whole new side to the story because at that point, WTI Houston really starts to look like a secondary benchmark in and of itself. And people really start to use it because when you look at it, you see that you've got a lot of supply, growing supply in fact, so you know it's gonna be around for a long time. Because there's a lot of refineries in Houston, you've got a lot of buyers and sellers that are in the market. You have access to the water, which means that you could take advantage of the opportunity to export that exists now. And the quality is guaranteed because Magellan is Houston, which is the terminal where the barrels are being traded, guarantees quality not only in storage, but even through the pipelines coming into Houston. And the same uh, changes in production that prompted the need for the WTI Houston assessment also affects LLS and the market uh, for light sweet crude in Louisiana. Because as we, as we see all of this domestic production come online, that really reduces the need for that imported crude. So the import arbitrage is less favorable. And shale crude actually begins flowing into St. James. So, for instance, the Ho-Ho pipeline, which was three, it's 375,000 barrels a day, once flowed from Louisiana to Texas, but is reversed. So transporting crude from Texas to Louisiana. Uh, it's renamed Zydeco. And, and not only that, but the cap line connection that we talked about earlier, 1.2 million barrels a day from Louisiana to the Mid-Continent. Actually, the flows dropped down to as little as 16,000 barrels a day, just as, as uh, recent as last August. Which is completely underutilized at that point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, part of that is because of uh, the WTI inversion that, that uh, Gus mentioned earlier. Right, so getting the barrels out of Cushing. Right, exactly. And, and, and so what happened during that time is um, the Diamond Crude line was one of the lines that you that was built to service the need uh, of, of the oversupply. And so that was built from Cushing to Memphis, Tennessee, really undercutting the need for that cap line light sweet supply from the U.S. Gulf Coast. And so in the, in the second half of 2017, as we see more shale crude kind of encroach on LLS, WTI Houston liquidity actually outpaces LLS in the spot market for the first time. Um, and by 2019, WTI Houston liquidity exceeds 450,000 barrels a day. So that's versus LLS volumes, which have kind of dwindled down to roughly 100,000 barrels a day. So LLS volumes go down. But that doesn't mean that the market goes away. In fact, the LS market is evolving, and we've seen that. This is important because LLS is still a reliable benchmark that can be used in Louisiana. Refiners still run the crude in Louisiana. 
So there's a place for LLS in this world. And what changes, though, is that because there is no volume going off the cap line, trade starts to happen in other terminals around the St. James area. At that point, Argus looks at the situation because we're getting all these transactions being reported into us at locations outside of the cap line terminal. We do what we always do in, in, in these situations, which is we go to the industry and we ask for their input. Should we change the methodology? Do you guys want us to capture these new trading hubs? And the answer is yes. So we went ahead and we, we changed our methodology. So now our LLS assessment looks different than it did even last year. And the story of LLS really is is not over in a way. It's just getting more interesting because as more shale crude pours into Louisiana, refiners are going to have to make that decision. Do they blend it into the LLS specification or do they just decide to run Bakken or run Eagleford or whatever it is that's coming into Louisiana? We're going to have more pipelines come online and, and even the cap line pipeline potentially could still be uh, reversed, but that remains to be seen. Yep. And unfortunately, that's about all the time we have. There's a lot to cover. So thank you, Alex, for that. I think it was very interesting. It's a really kind of cool story in LLS and how things have changed over the years. If you enjoyed this podcast, I would remind you that there are another five parts of this series that you can also listen to. If you want further information about U.S. crude markets, LLS, including any daily prices, you can check out our Argus Crude or Argus Americas Crude Reports. And there's also a date set for the next Argus America's Crude Summit, which will be in Houston, Texas, February 3rd through the 5th of 2020. Check out ArgusMedia.com for details. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next time with another look into one of the prices that create our world.